This is the Sensitive Matters Podcast, a podcast bringing empaths, perceptive people, creatives, unique projects, and sensitive matters into the spotlight. Join us for meaningful conversations that inspire and have the power to gently create awareness around sensitive and important matters such as mental health, conscious consumerism, sexuality, spirituality, ethical business, and much more. I am Christina Zipperlin, founder of the ethical jewelry brand Ananda Soul. I'm a highly sensitive human who values community, creative and spiritual exploration, and ways to make a positive impact. I'm also a psychology student and mental health and LGBTQIA advocate. We're tuning in from the magical island of Bali, where I've lived for over 12 years and is the home of my jewelry company that strengthens and gives back to the local community. Thank you for joining us for these conversations as we, together, explore sensitive matters. And now, enjoy the episode. Hello, and thank you for joining us for Sensitive Matters. This podcast is brought to you and made possible by Ananda Soul Jewelry. I created Ananda Soul in Bali over 12 years ago to offer heartfelt, intentional jewelry that works with the community I grew to know and love on the island that has become my home. Ananda brings creativity, respect for Balinese ritual, and a wish to give back to the local community to everything we do. To learn more about our story, ethics, and to receive $15 of your first order when you sign up for a newsletter, head over to anandasoul.com. Hello and welcome to Sensitive Matters. I am excited to welcome an important guest to the podcast today. Today's guest is someone whose work is very close to my heart. She has been a licensed clinical psychologist since 1982. She's a pioneer within disordered eating psychology and offers support through residential structured programs, consultations, and a lifetime of research within the field of eating disorders. I have also personally worked with her and found our time together and her approach to be impactful within my own journey. Dr. Anita Johnson is not only a leader in the field of eating psychology, but also the author of Eating in the Light of the Moon and a true storyteller, harnessing the power of story to heal and bring meaning to an area of life that is so often misunderstood. Welcome, Dr. Anita. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, to dive in, I know that you've dedicated your entire career to helping people recover from disordered eating and the relationships we have with food, with our bodies. And I'd love to know what inspired your career. Um, how did you get started to do this much, much needed work? Mm-hmm. Well, it's really a long story, and I'm not even sure what the beginning was, but I'd always been interested in uh, what were called women's issues back in the day, and and that came largely because 
Uh, I grew up on the island of Guam and my ancestors are Chamorro, which was a matrilineal culture. And there was still, I grew up in a very female-based household. And so I was just intrigued by the cultural issues around women. And so when I then was working as a psychologist, I had an intern that I was supervising that was doing her doctoral dissertation on the incidence of eating disorders in Hawaii. And this is back in the very early 1980s when very little was known. And so um, working with her and exploring what was going on there and realizing that this was such a big issue for so many, back then it was just girls and women that were showing up. That's not the case now. Mm -hmm. But that's how it was back then. And so I just got really, really interested in, first of all, why was it mostly females at that time that were struggling with body image and eating issues? Why was it these particular girls and women who came from all walks of life, all sizes, all ages, all ethnicities? And why was the struggle around eating and food? and body. And so that sort of began my journey of getting as curious as I could uh, and listening as carefully as I could to their stories to see if I could find, well, what's the common denominator? What What's the common thread amongst all these diverse individuals? So that was sort of the beginning of it back in the early 1980s, when very mm. little was known, by mm. the way. Uh, Karen Carpenter had just died. So people knew the term anorexia. Uh, bulimia had just gotten uh, diagnosed and um, any other kinds of struggles with eating, that wasn't even on the map. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That makes me really curious. And I'm curious in your own understanding, actually, do you think these are new phenomena or is it just that this hasn't been spoken about up until then or been addressed as something. Yes and yes. <laughs> I think, I think we're, the, the prevalence of it, the, the insanity of the diet culture we live in um, has certainly contributed. Uh, in fact, I used to wonder why I didn't have an eating disorder because I had the right personality. I should, given given my nature. But then I realized and, is that I did not grow up in an environment where people dieted. And I, and I wasn't too sure about this. And I asked a, my best friend growing up, we happened to be together. And I said, hey, do you remember, do you remember, did our mom's diet? Was anyone dieting? She goes, no, nobody was dieting. Now, that was a pretty short window because shortly thereafter that, the dieting craze hit the islands and so it was just like every place else. Mm, mm. There's two things. So I think said. that's that's made it way worse. Right. Right. There's two things you said that that um put the perk my ears. One was um you you do have the right personality. <laughs> Can you speak more about that? What that means? <laughs> yeah. So when I was looking for that common denominator, um 
what I discovered is that these girls and women who struggled were like the child in the fairy tale, The Emperor's No Clothes. And in that story, you have this really vain emperor who doesn't care much about ruling his kingdom. He's only interested in fine clothing and jewelry. And he had quite a reputation for this. So a couple of artists they come into town and they pretended to be tailors, but they said, oh, our clothing is so fine. Only those fit for their station in life can even see it. And so the emperor was impressed by this and he commissioned a whole new wardrobe for himself. And the con artists, they pretended to cut and stitch clothes that really wasn't there. But they all, all the people who worked for the emperor, they carried on about the fabulous outfits because they didn't want to lose their job. And even the emperor himself went on and on and on about his magnificent garments because he didn't want people to think he wasn't fit for his station in life. And so the con artists, they laugh all the way to the bank. And then there's going to be this grand procession where the emperor's wearing his new outfit. And as he's going through, of course, he's totally naked because there's no clothes there. But all the townspeople are ooing and eyeing because they didn't want their neighbor to think they were stupid. But there was a child in the crowd that said in a very loud voice, but mommy, the emperor has no clothes on at all. And when this child spoke, it created a ripple throughout the crowd and everyone saw the emperor for the fool that he was. So what I discovered as I was listening very carefully to the stories these individuals were telling me is that they were, were like that child in that fairy tale uh, in that they had an uncanny ability to perceive subtle realities. And what I mean by this is they had the capacity to read between the lines, see the bigger picture, sense hypocrisy. They could tell when things were not okay, even if everyone around them said, oh no, things are just fine. But because their lives weren't fairy tales, when they spoke out, much like the child, they might've said something like, oh, but mommy, if daddy loves us, how come he never comes home at night or some such thing? They were either ignored, maybe they were rejected, Perhaps in some instances they were ridiculed and maybe in some instances abused. So what had to happen is they had to find some way to dim their light, to diminish this capacity to perceive subtle realities, because what all children want, what all of us want is a sense of belonging, which they confused with fitting in. And it's not the same thing. So belonging is when you stay connected to your authentic self as you connect with others. Fitting in is when you have to abandon your authentic self to try to look like, act like, think like, feel like how you imagine others want you to look and act and think and feel. And that's where the seed for the disordered eating got planted. Mm. That just had me tear up a little bit. Mm. Just, um, that's so deeply resonant and it's such a beautiful way of looking at these behaviors quote unquote that that you know are are judged and are um seen as a disease and try to make go away and to to look at these individuals um as these beautiful beings who who have these understandings um mm -hmm. yeah and and even like 
you know, if I feel into these words fitting in, like it already has the fitting right in there, mm -hmm. like my whole body was like, oh, I have to squeeze myself into something. Mm -hmm. And when I hear belong, there's like a sigh. It's like, oh, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't have to change myself. I just belong. Like that, that's just mm -hmm. the nature, right? Mm -hmm. mm, that is so, so powerful. I'd love to, to dive into that a little bit more um, because you have mentioned within your work that disordered eating might not necessarily be about trauma or exclusively about trauma, but there is that element of sensitivity and our podcast is called Sensitive Matters. It's mm -hmm. something that I'm deeply passionate about. Mm -hmm. um, so I'd, I'd love to speak a little bit more about that mm -hmm. element of your understanding of this work. Yeah, it begins with an understanding of what is traumatic or what trauma is. Because trauma isn't what happened to you. It's how you experienced what happened to you. So what that means is if you happen to be an emotionally sensitive, highly intuitive individual, and you know, you're born like that, you're not going to change that any more than you're going to change the color of your eyes, right? That's your nature that you're born with. So what that means though, is that something that might be no big deal to somebody else penetrates your very bones. Mm -hmm. And so, so, um, sometimes then there is trauma that needs to get worked through. But other times there isn't any significant trauma, but what's required is learning how to be what I call a thin-skinned person living in a thick-skinned world, right? Because if you're, you're super sensitive, you're thin-skinned, what that means is you need a certain skill set in order to maneuver through this world where people are saying, oh, you're overreacting, you're too sensitive, oh, just get over it. And who's going to who's gonna teach you that skill set? Maybe you happen to be born into a family of thick skinned folks. So they don't even they don't even know what that means. They don't even understand. Um, it's certainly not taught in the schools. So where are you going to get this? And so in my experience, folks that struggle with disordered eating, they're just trying to cope as best they could. And and you can start to understand why it gets played out with food. If you can think of our, our very ex first experience on the planet of being in distress, what are we given? The breast mm -hmm. or the bottle? And we go, oh. So mm -hmm. right off the bat, we're hardwired to soothe ourselves with food. That's not the problem. The problem is when you don't develop other ways, and so then eating behaviors, whether it's food restriction or overeating or whatever it is, that becomes your one trick pony. That becomes your go-to for everything. And that's when things can get out of hand. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, so strong. Yeah. Thank you. You spoke when, when, when your curiosity started that you were really diving into the, the commonalities, what's there. And you spoke to the sensitivities and um, that, that way of experiencing the world really have you found any other um major contributors that could be there because you did mention it's kind of across the board yeah it's a hodgepodge okay so mm -hmm. you can have this <clears throat> particular nature disposition but then you can throw it's like a soup you know you get enough ingredients so maybe there's some family dysfunction maybe there's some cultural pressures 
Maybe there's a, some traumatic experience. Uh, maybe there's the cultural issues uh, around what it means to be in a particular kind of body. And you, you, you get enough ingredients and then you've got yourself a soup. Yeah, there is one thing that you can count on. They, they say, and I don't like this metaphor, but I don't know the better one. So I'm going to use it. They say that all these other factors load the gun, but there's one thing that pulls the trigger and that's dieting. Okay. So if you have all this stuff going on, you, you may have other issues and other things you're struggling with, but you're not going to have an eating disorder unless the diet is a factor. Okay. Yeah. And you mentioned that as well. You were like, there, there was a short window before. And so I'm, I'm in your own story, right. Of like, you, you weren't exposed to it at all and mm -hmm. you kind of mm -hmm. were in that short yeah. window and then it started. Um, mm -hmm. Can you speak more about that? Like specifically what, what happens in that, in that dynamic of the dieting? Okay. Um, it helps to understand. I, I like to use the metaphor of the red herring. So it, it, the red herring is like used in a whodunit mystery. Who killed the old lady? Is it the maid, the butler, the chauffeur? And you're following the mystery and everybody's watching the maid because she's, she's unusual. She's different. She's, and at the end of the story, there's a twist. It was the butler who nobody suspected because everyone's watching the maid. So what happens when you go on a diet? If anyone's ever been on a diet, you know, what do you focus on? The not eating, Ooh. or you focus on food, yeah. <laughs> food that you're not supposed to eat, right? Yeah. And let, so let's imagine that you're driving down a road. You've been down this road a hundred times, but this time you're on a diet, or maybe you're you're starving, which is the same thing. What's going to get your attention, right? Every fast food place, every restaurant, food, food, because the body is designed that way. So now imagine, let's say you're struggling with a love hate relationship with your mother. Or maybe your boyfriend ditched you. Or maybe you're on a career path that doesn't serve you. Um, these are complex issues that require a complex set of skills that maybe you don't have because you and you feel this stuff really deeply. And you go on a diet, that's the red herring. It's going to capture your attention and is going to hold it because the real issues never get resolved. So you got to keep doing more and more and more and more of that. And that's, that's how people get trapped into the whole disordered eating journey is because it's very effective at capturing your attention, but it's really the red herring. The mm -hmm. real culprit is something mm -hmm. else. The real culprit is that you've got stuff going on in your life You're emotionally sensitive and you don't yet have the skill set for coping with them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it can be learned, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That just my whole body is like, there's so much truth there because I know in my own journey of recovery, looking back, it was just the most effective tool that I've found to in a way, numb myself, right? It was almost like a, this really strong mantra or meditation of like, if I only focus on that, everything else kind of fades away for that moment. It of course right. comes back, but yeah, so much there. I love the way you approach this work and especially the storytelling. Like every time I, I sit with you or listen to your work, it's it just 
it registers in my body differently to hear mm -hmm. these myths and these stories of like, oh yeah, now I get it. So yeah, I love it. It's actually that. going into a different part of your brain. Right. And it's intentional, by the yes. way. Yeah. Uh, I, I use stories. Well, I started using stories because that's how I grew up. Again, in my, in my culture, a lot of deep teachings were taught through story. And then my daughters, when they were growing up, they went to Waldorf schools, or they're sometimes called Steiner schools, and everything's taught in story. And I thought, oh, okay, I get this. I see how stories can work. And with eating disorders, what can happen is a person can get so entrenched so far down that path that you have to come in a different way because they're ready to defend this attachment for a good reason, right? The, the eating disorder has served a function and a very important function. And um, so they're not going to let someone just come in and take it away. So you don't do that. You come in with a story or a metaphor and then let them find their way to the truth that is their particular truth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. where I use the the log metaphor for that reason, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which I'll be happy to share that. Yeah, with you. I'd love that. I was going to ask for that. It, it's my favorite now because I get emails from people all over the world saying that this metaphor helped them change their perception. So with all of these metaphors, we're using your superpower. And again, if you're emotionally sensitive, highly intuitive, you're really good at this. And, and the superpower is imagination. Now, a lot of people say, well, I don't have a good imagination. And I like to say, what do you think worry is, <laughs> right? <laughs> worry is a bad use of a good imagination. So we, so we begin using that. And, and you imagine you're on the banks of a raging river. It's pouring down rain. You slip, you fall in, you're drowning. You're getting pulled down through the rapids and along comes a big log and you grab on and the log saves your life. It keeps your head above water when surely you would have drowned. And eventually it carries you to a place in the river where the water is calm. And from there you can see the riverbank, but you can't get there because of the log. So the irony is the very thing that saved your life is now getting in the way of you going where you want to go in life. And to make it more complicated, there's almost always someone on that riverbank yelling, let go of the log, let go of the log. And you feel like an absolute idiot because you can't let go. Well, the way I see it is that letting go of that log may not be the best thing to do initially. Because what happens if you let go of that log, throw it away, start to swim to shore, get halfway there and realize, oh, I don't have the strength to make it. That means you don't have the strength and confidence to make it back to the log either, and you're really sunk. So I happen to believe that all of us have a wise part of ourselves that will not, will not let us let go of anything until we're good and ready. So what do you do instead? Let go of the log and try floating. And when you start to sink, grab back on. And then you let go of the log and you try treading water. And when you get tired, you grab back on. And then you let go of the log and you swim around it once, grab back on. Twice, grab back on. 10 times, 100 times, 200 times. Whatever it takes for you to have the strength and confidence to make it to shore. Then you let go of the log. Mm -hmm. So it, 
in this metaphor, I haven't talked about eating once. I'm talking about a log, right? And swimming. But I'm talking about the what it feels like when you're drowning in some really strong emotional currents. And and so here comes the, the disordered eating. Not a bad idea to grab on. That's not the problem. The problem is that you then now, you, you know, if you want to go over there, you need to develop a certain skill set to get where you want to go in life. And so I, I like to use this metaphor because it's important that people who struggle understand there's nothing wrong with them. They're not broken or damaged goods in some way. It's just they were coping as best they could. And now there's a whole other skill set that they need to learn. And anyone can learn it. It's just a skill. Mm, yeah. When we do apply that metaphor to eating, what would be some of these skill sets? What would be like the, mm. the equivalent of yeah. swimming one circle around the Yeah, mind? Yeah. So we, we start with introceptive awareness, which is the capacity to read your internal states. So for example, when we say my head is pounding, my heart is racing, my stomach is rowling, that's introceptive awareness. So the skill that a person needs to fully, completely recover from any kind of disordered eating is the capacity to identify their physical hunger and satiety cues. What are the sensations in their body that tell them they're hungry and, and what tells them they're full? Um, another skill is emotional literacy. If you are emotionally sensitive, you better learn what the nature of emotions are because we're not taught that. They're not a thing. Um, they're an energy, emotion, energy in motion. They're designed to flow, but we don't know that because we're taught we're supposed to control our emotions. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> you can't control them any more than you're going to swim up a mountain, right? Um, because that's not their nature. So, so the, the task of being emotionally literate is learning to um, identify your feelings and learn other ways of being with them so that they can just keep on flowing. That's what they're designed to do. You see very little children have, have this ability before it's been taught out of them. You'll see a child that's like really, really, really angry. And then two minutes later is laughing. Wait, what just happened? They're done with it. It just flowed on through. So emotional literacy is really an important skill. And, an, and another one, which I consider the most important skill. In fact, you know, I've worked with thousands of people who have totally, completely recovered from their struggle with eating. And I mean, totally recovered, period, end of story. And, but not without this skill. And, and that's the skill of assertive communication which is the ability to identify, accept, and express your feelings in the kindest way possible, in the way that, that um, honors your experience, as well as honoring the experience of the other. That's absolutely critical. And it kind of pulls everything together because to be assertive, you have to be able to identify your feelings, right? Mm -hmm. And, and so, um, that it all kind of comes together with that one. Mm -hmm. Boundary setting, it's another important one. Assertive communication helps with that. Mm. Yeah. 
such powerful tools. And as you mentioned a few times, you know, they're not, they're not taught in school. So I'm like, ah. And they're just skills. They're like learning to ride a bike or drive a car or swim or play the piano. Anyone can learn it with practice. Yeah. But, but it does take practice. Um, but it's totally doable. You don't, you don't need some magical DNA. Totally. Um, you've mentioned the the recovery piece and I'm just in celebration of, um, you know, you saying that out loud of like have fully and completely recovered. Um, Mm. cause, and I'm quite open about my own story, but I, when I struggled with anorexia, which started around 13, 14, I was put into a clinic and I was basically told, um, oh, you're one of those cases. You're, you're going to be chronic and this is just going to basically be with you. Right. And, um, and hearing that as a child, really, right. I was 14. Um, and that was because my mom pulled me out of the clinic. And so they were like trying to scare her and Mm. it's been such, and I know you work with people affected by disordered eating. It's been such a long and crazy journey. And I do, consider myself as recovered however it is something that's so tricky in in this field especially when it comes to anorexia because we need to eat we need to nourish these bodies and you know in in AA you receive the coin and you're like yes I'm sober I haven't been Mm -hmm. using or drinking or you know even and I know that's where it gets blurry with bulimia it's like oh I haven't been purging but there's certain elements of like you know, what to eat, how much to eat, does um, thinking about it still, like, does that make you recovered? So um, I'd love it if you could speak more about recovery element, like what does it actually mean when people say, when people are in recovery? And also, um, and that's a, a, a double question, but do you have any tips for people who are living with people who are dealing with eating disorders or who are in recovery, what are the things to say, not to say? Okay. Well, you're talking about several different things, but I Mm. think one of the things is that you have to understand that when you're working with eating disorders, you're entering the world of paradox because they're about food because, you know, they're eating disorders. But they're also not so not about food. And frankly, in my experience, that's the bigger piece. So I think if you're if you have loved ones, it's about emotions and that they haven't yet found ways to put the enormity of their emotions into words. That's basically um, uh, and and why. And because uh, I think this also speaks a little to what recovery really is, because I'm going to zoom way out so you can see how this gets started in the first place. Um, so we are, as, as, as human beings, we're born with two very powerful drives. One is the drive for attachment because we're mammals right? We're not lizards that hatch out of an egg or turtles and just go on our way. No, we're mammals and we have to attach to our caregivers in order to be fed and taken care of and all of that. So there's a reason why we have this really super strong drive. Um, But there's another 
equally powerful drive because we're human beings. And that is the drive for authenticity. That is the drive to be your, become who you're meant to become in this life, to go where you're meant to go, to live your own unique destiny. And each and every one of us, it's, it's as unique as our thumbprint. So we're born with that drive. What happens as we're growing up and because we're um, human mammals, this is a long period of time. This is our entire childhood, is that there are times in which these two drives come into conflict and guess which one wins? Mm -hmm. Attachment, right? It has to. We have to survive. And so the, the problem though, and, and what this looks like is little kid wants a cookie. And mommy says, no, you can't have a cookie. We're having dinner in an hour. And little kid goes, I want a cookie. I want a cookie. And mommy says, if you don't stop that, you're not going to get any cookies at all. And little kid goes, okay, I don't want a cookie. Right? So, so attachment wins because um, it, it's how it has to be with our caregivers. And so if you happen to be emotionally sensitive and highly intuitive, you're going to be really good at picking up on how others want you to be. So it's going to win quite often. And the disconnect from authentic self gets weakened. The problem with this is then when we go into adulthood, we carry this pattern of whenever there's conflict between the two attachment wins, we try to be in like I said earlier, look like, act like, think like how we imagine others want us to be. And we get disconnected, or not totally, we never can, but it, the connection to authentic self gets frayed. And the problem with that is that when, whenever we're not connected to our authentic self, it creates a tension within us that if, if you think of a towel twisted in two opposite opposite directions. And that tension can become even painful. And so we will grab onto anything, food, thoughts of food, alcohol, shopping, drugs, anything to alleviate the pain. And, and, mm -hmm. and that's why what recovery is, real true recovery, is strengthening that connection to authentic self. And, and so um, when you do that, everything else starts to take care of itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because you, you, if you're connected to your authentic self, you are aware of what your feelings are in the moment and you understand that your feelings are a part of your inner guidance system that's helping you, even if they're uncomfortable, helping you know what's okay, what's not okay. And, and you become assertive. So you're able to put that into words and speak your truth. Um, and so that's what life looks like. The other thing I want to say for, is that Recovery is not just going back to who you were before the eating disorder. No, you're going into a life beyond your wildest dreams. Because why? It's your life. <laughs> it's not somebody else's idea of what your life should be. It's your life. And there's so much joy in that that it's extraordinary. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm just feeling into, into this like really stepping into our authentic selves. And mm -hmm. I'd love to know if you, if you have any guidance on 
on how to do that more, especially keeping in mind the world that we do live in. And we haven't spoken about it much. Um, however, we do live in a world where especially the younger generations, they have never known a world without internet, without social media, without these messages. Sure, th these messages have been there, right? But um, for what I'm, when I feel into what, so especially social media does in me, like the whole comparison component comes up for me where I just see these other people's lives mm -hmm. and how they're wanting to present them and the things that come up with in within me. Um, and then the other element of the cheering on of certain looks of certain behaviors, like you're speaking about the dieting. Um, and I, I've experienced it myself. I, I've, I continue to see it, the somebody very clearly struggling with disordered eating and it being celebrated, it being like, oh my God, you look amazing. And, mm -hmm. and the cheering on of, of that, mm -hmm. how can we live in a world where that exists mm -hmm. and yeah. focus on strengthening that connection to the authentic self? Well, you just said it. The key is strengthening that connection to your authentic self because that your true self, your soul self, your, who you really are, can perceive the nonsense, right? Um, and so the more you're connected to your authentic self, you know, it's like the child in the fairy tale. You can see what's nonsense, what's not real. So that, I think that's what people do need to do in the, in this culture in which we're getting lambasted by messages left, right, and center that are, that are really trying to keep us trying to attach to all of that and be all of that, but strengthening your authentic self. So, so the way you, here's an example of how you might do that. Um, and another metaphor. So in Hawaii, the, the eel lives in a reef in the hole in the ocean. Wait, did I get that right? No, the eel lives in a hole in the reef in the ocean. <laughs> and, and the lobster makes its home at the mouth of this hole. Now, this is a great setup for the eel because it has a lobster on its doorstep with an antenna going out, keeping an eye out for predators. It's way more complicated for the lobster because eels eat lobsters. So what the lobster has to do is have one antenna going out, watching out for predators out there. The other has to keep an eye on the eel. So what I've found is that those who struggle with disordered eating are like lopsided lobsters in that they have this magnificent, extraordinary, brilliant outer antenna. Can walk into a room, pick up on the vibe, know what people expected them, provide that before those people even know that that's what they want. They're that good. Problem is lousy inner antenna. So what that means is then you're like a lopsided lobster. And, and if you have a, a, a brilliant outer antenna and poor inner antenna, what happens is you're way better at picking up on and responding to the needs and feelings of others than you are your own needs and feelings. And that creates a state of deprivation, sort of like writing checks and not making deposits. 
right? And and so what has to happen is to put that outer antenna on automatic pilot. It's going to serve you the rest of your life. It's genius. There are people that would die for an antenna like that, right? It's done. This job is done. Just keep it going. Because it was well developed when you had to learn how to anticipate trouble down the road or fly beneath the radar. So it's like, you got it. Now pull all of your energy and put it towards creating an inner antenna. How do you do that? Well, one is introceptive awareness, right? Tuning in to your body, feeling what's going on in your body. Another way is to change the questions you ask yourself. So instead of saying, what's she going to think if I say this? How is he going to react if I do that? Uh, what do they think about the way I'm handling this situation? You ask yourself, how do I feel about what she just said? What's my reaction to what he did? What's it like for me to be here with these people at this point in time? Tuning in, tuning in, tuning in. So that's the antidote to, to living in a world like we live in because it's sort of, that's like a, like a typhoon. It's just spinning around, but there's always the center of the storm. And you don't have to, you don't have to get pulled out there. You can be in the center and observe it. You're not going to stop the typhoon, but you can, you can notice it. So that, that connection to authentic self helps center you, um, in your own life. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you. Let's dive more into, into the storytelling component. I'd love to speak more about your book eating in the light of the moon mm -hmm. and you wrote it a long time ago now 26 <laughs> years ago or something um mm -hmm. and i also read that in the early 1990s yeah. right. how did the book come to be mm. well i was um i had clients that i was working with and they kept asking for more of these concepts like i'd tell them the log metaphor or whatever. And, and so it started off sort of like, well, I'll make a little booklet for them because it, what, what, I, it wasn't written. And, uh, then that as time went on, it grew more and more, um, more and more stories, more and more. Um, and then at, at one point I did have an agent and I knew nothing about writing a book, but They said, well, we need more stories. And I went, oh, great. Where am I going to find more stories? And so I would go to the children's section, for example, in the library, and sometimes a book would fall on my foot. <laughs> I'd pick it up and I go, oh, my God, this is the perfect story for blah, blah, blah. And so, um, but it took me 10 years because I had children I was raising. I had a private practice. I was really busy. And, and I, and I honestly, I have to say, I, I didn't write that book. It wrote me. And I remember one time, a number of years ago, my older daughter said, mom, did you say blah, 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 blah. And I said, well, I don't know. Why are you asking? She goes, well, somebody's quoting you on the internet. And I went, well, maybe. And I had to go page by page through the book. <laughs> to see if I said it. <laughs> and I did. <laughs> so, so it started with that. And then a number of years ago, I'd say about uh, eight years ago, it's been, people kept asking me for a workbook 
for eating in the light of the moon. And every time I thought about a workbook, it just seems so boring and dry to me. I couldn't summon the enthusiasm until a friend of mine, a, a, who is a dietitian and colleague, we've been doing workshops together. And she said, well, do you, and we were doing it in, in women's circle format. She goes, do you think we could create women's circle online? And I said, I don't know, but let's try. So that's when we created the Light of the Moon Cafe, which is now, it's like a online workbook, women's circle book club for <laughs> eating in the Light of the Moon, but it's interactive. It's not mm. for me, the idea of it just being a workbook that was boring, but this way we have a forum and women from all over the world post on the forum and I get to respond. And so it's very lively. So everything mm -hmm. has been... I've just followed the breadcrumbs is basically mm -hmm. it. If, if there was a need coupled with my feeling of excitement about it, that had to be there. I just, I can't do anything that doesn't carry that for me. And so mm -hmm. that's how it's all evolved. Mm. How did the name come to be like the, uh -huh. especially the moon element and yeah. how is the, relationships yeah. to disordered eating and yeah well the the moon um is a symbol for the feminine principle in many cultures all over the world and so mm, part of the basis for eating in the light of the moon is my understanding that our culture has become so cockeyed so lopsided in terms of I'm calling it the masculine feminine principle. It, it's difficult be, because of the language. It sounds genderized, but it's not. Um, I, I use those terms because those are the terms that indigenous peoples also use to describe these fundamental um, uh, aspects of life and, and of ourselves. And because in dreams, and, and I'm, uh, do, I do a lot of dream work, the feminine principle shows up in a female form and the masculine principle shows up in the male form. But we both, all of us, regardless whether you're cisgendered and male, female, trans, queer, whatever, we all have these two aspects. But we live in a culture that overvalues the masculine principle, which is logical, linear, goal, achievement oriented, and undervalues the feminine principle, which has to do with emotions, instincts, intuitions, relatedness. And so um, what, I, what I saw is that these folks struggling with eating disorders, they had, like all of us have, we internalized that imbalance, but because they were so highly emotionally intuitive, that it, it really hit them in a hard way. And so eating at the light of the moon is, is being in the feminine principle. And, um, and there again, the light of the moon cafe, which was like, it's a virtual gathering place to be in that light. And I just started in the last couple of weeks, a new project at the light of the moon cafe called living in the light of the moon, mm. which is an ongoing uh, community subscription of people that are, that are supporting each other in this journey. So I happen to believe that we're living in an extraordinary time. And it's the time th that for the first time, perhaps 
in 7,000 years, maybe even 30,000 years, that the feminine principle has the opportunity to come into balance with the, with the masculine principle. And many indigenous cultures have prophesied this. And I, 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 I've seen it, I've felt it. And unfortunately, um, for some people, it's been a really rough road trying to create that balance within themselves. But the moon is, is that symbol of the, of the feminine. I know you're, you're aware how much I, um, in my own work and creations in life, work with the moon and those energies mm -hmm. and also with the honoring of the body. Like it's for me that, mm -hmm. that modality of creating art, creating jewelry creating symbols has been actually my own expression of really creating reminders for myself and then it seems to be yeah. resonating with a lot of women yeah. of connecting with my emotional needs what do I need today what do I need to be reminded of today um and a lot around the nourishment around the I'm loved and we're connected and the element of the moon really with with the moon collection we just launched um and we sent you some pieces that you chose as part of this podcast and i'd love it if you could share the the pieces that you did yeah. choose well first of all i have to say your work is stunning and i and i was Honestly, it took me hours <laughs> because I wanted to look at every single piece. I couldn't stand it. Um, brilliant. And um, so I, I had a hard time deciding. Uh, um, in fact, I, I was almost laughing at that because the, the pieces arrived so quickly. I thought, oh, my gosh, it took me longer to decide than it did for them to arrive. <laughs> And, and so the ones that I picked were living in, uh, uh, into the light because that just really fit for the, that's kind of this new piece that, I, that I'm, uh, that I'm doing. And then here to be, and, and all of the messages really resonated with me. And so when I decided I was just going to have to go with my intuition. And so there's something uh, uh, with, with these two pieces that I'm wearing right now because I, I had to get both of them. I couldn't decide. Um, they're also like the quartered circle, which is a very powerful uh, symbol. Um, it's, an, it's an important archetype because, the first of all, it is the masculine feminine principles together, which we, you know, neither one is better than the other. And also when you... Um, quarter a circle, you create a center that anchors it. So that, that drew me. I just went, oh, I love the, the movement and the stability of it. So, but I have to say, I was, I, I, I don't even know the word for it. I was struck by the no, radiance. I was struck by the radiance of the pieces. So that, it really comes through. Um, the, the heart felt energy, the particular vibrational frequency is in your work. Thank you. Yeah, that is, that is the dream and the intention mm -hmm. of infusing Good job. These <laughs> with, with that message that I know 
um, we all need. And it's it's funny, you know, how it was like, oh, how can we balance out some of the messaging that is created? Mm -hmm. And and I think it's really what you're doing, what what I'm doing, what yeah. to just choose to create other energies that are also out there like yeah. let's just balance yeah <laughs> yeah i mean when, when you walk into a dark room you don't try to push the darkness out you turn on a light mm -hmm. and and that's what that's what these pieces feel like for me it's like it is turning Thank on the light and, and i do have to say uh one more thing because i i believe with every fiber in my being that those who have struggled with disordered eating and gotten on the recovery path are the people the world has been waiting for. And what I mean by that is that because of that emotional sensitivity, what comes with that is an extraordinary level of compassion and empathy. And that's what the world needs right now. That's what we're in short supply of. And so um, I stand in honor of everyone going down that path. And um, you're a perfect example of that. I have full body chills and tears in my eyes. Thank you. Oh, it's been a long journey. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank you so, so much for who you are and for devoting so much of your life to this work. It's, um, yeah, it ch I know how much it changes lives and it, yeah. it not only saves them, but as you said, there is, there's so much beauty and so much compassion mm -hmm. to be lived when we do overcome these challenges that look so, so different in, in different people's lives. Mm -hmm. But, um, mm -hmm. yeah. And to bring people together who have yeah. struggled. Thank you for doing that. Yeah. Well, I, I think. You know, there's a movement afoot right now. It's happening. The feminine is rising. The, the, the women are finding their wings. Uh, men are finding the feminine within them. Um, you know, there are people that are learning to balance both within themselves. And uh, I invite anyone that's interested to come to the Light of the Moon Cafe. Mm -hmm. And, um, join the community it's happening mm -hmm. yeah thank you that's um yeah that that's kind of where i wanted to to lead us to um for anyone who wants to know more about your work wants to find your book work with you how can they do that okay so there's a couple of ways one the book is on amazon eating in the light of the moon um, I have a couple of websites. One is dranitajohnston.com and the other is lightofthemooncafe.com. And my I have a treatment center in Hawaii. It's called Ipono, which is spelled A-I-P-O-N-O.com. So I'm all over the place. <laughs> and if, if someone wants to get in touch with me, um, feel free to contact me and I'm happy to answer any questions that you might have. Beautiful. Thank you. We'll write all those links into the show notes as well. So just check there if anyone listening. 
Thank you so much. I have so, so a, I have a gift for I have a free gift for your yeah I do. Oh All they have to do is go to lightofthemooncafe.com forward slash as for Ananda Soul. <laughs> And um, I have a little food and metaphor guide. If someone is struggling and they want to know um, what the different foods mean that they're struggling with to help them get to their deeper truths. Wow. Thank you so much, Anita. Oh, that's the, I didn't know about that. So that's such a sweet surprise. We'll definitely put that link in the show notes as well. It's so generous. Thank you so much. Thank so you. Incredibly beautiful. Thank you for joining us for Sensitive Matters. If you haven't had a chance yet, please subscribe on Spotify, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast from. And if you have a chance, please rate and review if you're listening via Apple Podcast, as it really helps more people discover the show to listen to these incredible conversations. This podcast is brought to you from Bali and made possible by my ethical jewelry company, Ananda Soul. You can check out our website and all of our ethically handmade jewelry at anandasoul.com. You'll also receive a $15 gift card on your first purchase when you subscribe to our newsletter, so make sure not to miss out on that as well. Thank you again for joining us, and we look forward to sharing more of Sensitive Matters with you.